Welcome to this special Legal AF where I'm joined by George Conway, who everybody has seen and heard over the years. George, you have been somebody that has just we've been in awe of because you're a conservative mm -hmm because you're a conservative Republican who's been very, very outspoken and vocal about Donald Trump for years, even raising the alarm bells way before many others were and, and warning people about his dangers and his and and his just uh, psychology, if you if you will, and, and why he is just a different animal than any of us are used to. So I, I'm so thrilled that you are willing to join this pod. I mean, you, your your credentials are beyond impressive. You know, Harvard, Yale, educated, uh, worked for many many years as a as a lawyer. You were up for being solicitor general, which is code for anyone out there. If you're going to be a solicitor general or you argue in the Supreme Court, you're the smartest of the smart lawyers. And so you you just have an you've had an incredible career. But my favorite thing that you do and have done is you're hilariously funny, which I always appreciate. So I love following you on X and seeing what you have to say about things, because I think it, it makes everything um, better when when you add a little humor and certainly it makes yeah. this time that we're in a little more palpable. Yeah, so I don't know how we can get by without a few jokes here and there, whether <laughs> well, it be gallows humor or not, you know, I mean, whatever. Yeah. And I'll, I'll we'll probably ramp it up when they send me to Guantanamo next year. Yeah, well, but welcome, welcome, and thank you for joining. And I just, you know, really wanted to get your brain on all things that are happening right now, just in our country, involving Republicans and Democrats and Donald Trump. And where, where do you see that we are, and where do you see a path forward for us? That's well, that's a that's a hard question because it encompasses so much the political and the legal. I mean, I see what I think right now is we have a Republican Party that is basically on autopilot. Um and it, it it's it's completely out of control. I, the, the metaphor I've used in the past is that Malaysian Airlines flight that took off from I don't know, was it Kuala Lumpur or Singapore? And then turned around and instead of going to Beijing, where it's supposed to go, it flew into the Indian Ocean. And it's like, this guy is in the cockpit. He's completely nuts, talking about Trump, of course. And he's flying this, to, this, this airplane, the Republican Party, to nowhere. And there are some people on board who are saying, well, I don't see any... I don't see any city lights down there. We're over the middle of the ocean. Where are we going? But most of the passengers on board, you know, think that those guys are trying to hijack the plane. And if they actually make a move for the cockpit, they're going to get attacked. And, and you know, it's just this bizarre circumstance where these so many people in the Republican Party have shielded themselves. Uh, pr they protect themselves from reality. They They live in a they either don't consume uh, news or they consume conservative media that refrains from telling them things that they don't want to hear, uh, whether that be Fox News, which, you know, had to pay that $787.5 million judgment for passing on the uh, election, stolen election lies or the Newsmax or all these other things, other, these other outlets. I mean, they're, they're just 
I mean, they're just they're, they're just brainwashed. Um, Fifty million people or sixty million people, and that's kind of that's hard to reverse. And and um, but it's but un- I understand. So- I just have one yeah. question about what you just said. I understand the politicians who have to do it. I don't agree with it. And right. I have tremendous respect for the the Liz Cheney's of the world or the Adam Kinzinger's of the world yeah. or the use of the world. Not that you're a politician, but the people who say, you know what, I'm going to put my conservative beliefs aside or, or even Mike Pence and say, I'm going to put my beliefs aside and do what's right. And and yeah. we know what's happened to all of them. Right. And yeah. Chris Christie's they another. Started, they've all right. they're started all... with Jeff Flake. When, remember, Jeff Flake started to say right. he was drummed out of the Senate. You know, I one of the reasons why I started speaking out, and by the way, I'm no longer a Republican. In March of 2018, I registered in New Jersey as a unaffiliated voter because I believed at that time, and I, that's what, what I said to people was, this party has become a personality cult, and that was March of 2018. That's six years ago. It's much worse now, which is just absolutely insane. But what I, you know, I the people, the problem fundamentally is, is that. Everyone, people are, they have all these mixed motives. I mean, there's there's fear for those who um, live off the Republican Party, the con- political consulting class and, and the lobbying class and all of these people who make their money off the political system. You know, they feel that they, they can't cross uh, the majority of Republican voters. They can't cross Donald Trump because it'll basically ruin their careers. You've got some politicians who are, ambitious they want to go for higher office and they think the only way they can do that is by dumbing themselves down and and repeating lies and giving trump a pass on things they know to be morally corrupt or legally corrupt you've got lots of people who just don't want to admit a mistake they just don't want to say oh you know i was wrong i i supported trump in 2016 or 2016 and 2020 uh, and I, it was a mistake because they, they they feel foolish. And and I think that part of it is also, if, if you go to the mass electorate, that's a big piece of what's going on. Um, I, I think there, part of it is, as I mentioned, the, the bubble, the media bubble that people have tended to surround themselves with. But I think partly the, the reason they partly do that, I mean, partly it's they're not, edu- you know, paying enough attention. They're not educated enough or they're not informed enough and they don't choose to be. But then there are people who could be, who are intelligent and who are otherwise well-informed about the world, but they shut out the things they don't want to hear because they don't want to be confronted. They don't want to look themselves in the mirror and say, wow, I support this. And so they they black it, black it out. I mean, there are just so many different mixed motives here. But why are, not why are the American people falling for it? That's what I can't understand. Even if there's well, motives that you can justify with politicians. Yeah. You know, look, I have family members, I'm sure you do too, who who are supportive of him. And these are people yeah, who I, I love. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah. And they're yeah, smart. I do have family and they're, members, right? And they're smart and they're educated and they're people who I love and respect. And for the life of me, it's I can't understand it. How do you explain that there's so many people out there who are willing to follow this and who are who who are believing there are things that he says that are just objectively not true and they don't care? Right. And I think that the I mean, I think partly it's there's a lot of kind of narcissism in the country and a lot of anger about life 
in general that finds its way into the political world. And um, people, you know, there, there's a certain part of a lot of individuals, and this is getting into sort of psychoanalysis of, of cults and cultish behavior, where people need to feel part of an in-group and they need to, they, they have a need to sort of hate an out-group. And there's, that's, that's part of what's going on. And part of it is just, it's simpler to accept the words of a fearless leader than it is to actually think things through and think out the nuances and think out the qualifications and then challenge your own views when your own views are challenged by the facts. That's that's hard work. And it's also, you know, it, it's also humbling work because you, you realize in life, I think most people should, you know, I think you get wiser and more mature as you realize how you've been wrong about things and how you your perceptions were wrong and how your judgments were wrong because we all being imperfect beings uh make those mistakes and i think the people who who mature over the years are the people who accept that they've made mistakes and try to correct them and the people who are fearful of being called out for making mistakes and want to be in denial of having made those mistakes, they those are the people that we are seeing. I think who fall for Trump, um, in, in my, to my mind. But it's not. I don't want to say that it's any one thing. I think there's just there is cultural resentment that's a part of it, where people feel that that other people in the elites in the Eastern universities or the this or that place look down upon them because they they're not perceived to be as smart or as educated or as having much, as much class or this or that. And I think there's there's just a lot of resentment there that finds its way into the political culture in a in a in a manner that just is it has become irrational. I mean, we see it we see it today in the I mean the, the whole thing about Taylor Swift. Why, they're picking on Taylor Swift. Why? Because That's she's insane. You know, it's like she's a she's a pop star. We we love pop stars normally, and then she's seeing a football player. We love football. What what's the problem here? I, I can't, you know, but there's just people who just, you know, it's, it's there's misogyny involved, but it's not just, it's not just the, well, they're it's worried, not just men. They're, they're worried. Yeah. They, they, it's, there's just a lot. There's a psychology here, a complex psychology here. I think it's different for different types of folks, but it's all gelled into this toxic mix that I think it's going to take a while for us to, 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 to find an antidote for. Uh, yeah. But I do think, you know, I, you, you said uh, your point about uh, so many Americans have fallen for it. They have, but I think most Americans have not. And I, I, am, I remain hopeful that in the fall, um, you know, common sense and normality will prevail. But we will still have a problem going forward with a large section of the American public who just doesn't want to face truths about things. And the truth about things is 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 not they they want they they perceive a, a an alternative universe an alternative world I won't say alternative facts uh, but <laughs> that is you know they, they, everything's worse to, for them than, worse to them than it actually is and things that are actually bad they ignore and it's like we live in this country that is I mean I don't. I mean, I'm not just talking about the jobs report today that was terrific, but we live as comfortably and as well as a people as 
virtually any, leaving apart maybe a couple of Scandinavian countries this, this year, um, in, in human history. This should be the most content society uh, ever on this planet. And, you know, who knows how long that would last. We don't have much to complain about. I mean, we, we, we don't have, I'm not saying that, that, that we don't have poverty in this country, we don't have uh, racism, we don't have problems, but compared to, again, leaving apart the MAGA part of it, just, just on a day-to-day basis, the way people live their lives, everyone has cell phones and everybody has this and everybody has that. And we don't really see that many people starving on the streets or in Appalachia. Um, it's certainly better than it was 50 or 60 years ago when, when Lyndon Johnson started the war on poverty. We don't, we we have very little to really complain about. We should be grateful. And yet we have a large section of the population that feels aggrieved that things are getting worse. Things are getting worse for them, for their children. And they, they need, and the way they, they plan to solve that is to basically destroy everything. I mean, did you see that article in Politico? about a week and a half ago. It was right before the, the New Hampshire primary. And it was uh, Michael Cruz, a fine writer at Politico, um, interviewed a Republican voter in New Hampshire who was a former, uh, formerly in the Marine Corps, I think. He, you know, he's a reasonably well-off individual and not, not a dummy. I mean, you know, he doesn't have a PhD from, in politics from Oxford, but he, he's no, no dummy. And Cruz interviewed him on his views about things and why he decided to vote for Donald Trump. And basically, it was all, there were no real policy issues that were of any seriousness. I mean, a little harping on immigration and things like that. But it was more about resentment, resentment of other people and he wants to be the you got the sense that the voter wants thinks perceives other people out there as thinking they're hoity-toity and they're better than him and he wants to wreck them and ruin their lives and then the question came back to us well and and he said and basically he thinks donald trump is the wrecking ball that will help you know get these people and cruz basically asked him well won't that hurt you too and he goes yes It, it it is just this bizarre, self-defeating, nihilistic mindset that is, frankly, to me, not fully explicable. I mean, I can describe it. I can I can trace some of the resentments, the resentment of educated elites, the resentment of minorities, the resentment of um, people in the media, the resentment of politicians, who, you know, but it's just, it is just this bizarre, angst and anger that really ha- has been channeled by Donald Trump th- as if though through a, a prism and it's and, and it's focused directly on our, our legal and political and constitutional system and the rule of law which is just which is the the thing that really makes this so such a dangerous dangerous moment in our history. I'm rambling yeah. on there, but no, no, no. But pivoting to the legal issues, which I know yeah. um, people are going to want to hear your perspective on. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you a couple of questions. So, the, 
historic verdict in the E. Jean Carroll yeah. case. And the reason I say historic is because he only got, she only got, or he only got whacked with a $5 million verdict for rape and the major defamation, right? This is now this $83 million for the the other defamation, the first defamation, right? And then the punitives is just, is just, uh, I think that was a massive message being sent to Donald Trump, which is, which is ridiculous, right? The, the, yeah. I'm going to say it a thousand times. I'm never going to stop. Well, guess what? Right. It stopped. Um, yeah, well, I have a for now. For now, well, people, a lot of people have the have a have a question. Number one, is she ever going to see the money? Number two, is he going to have to put up the money to if he wants to appeal? Number three, when will she see the money? And number four. Can it be paid by his supporters, the super PACs, all, all, all the grit, you know, the, the grifting he does off of these cases? Is he going to have to pay this money or is it going to come from from somebody else? Well, that's a that's a good question. I, and I'm going to confess I haven't delved deeply into all of those questions, but to take them in order and actually start with your description of the judgment. Which was accurate. I, I I didn't. I was not surprised by the size of the judgment. And if anything, I thought it might it could have easily ended up being higher. Which is not to say that it wasn't a remarkable judgment, and a remarkable verdict, and an amazing achievement, and 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 a terrific thing overall. But he was a, he he was hit with the five million dollar judgment, as you note, in t last year, and two million of that was from the, you know, the, the claim that she was able to bring under the New York Survivors Act for the actual sexual assault in 1996. And then the other three million roughly was for the defamation that he engaged in, the defamation of her that he engaged in after he was president. And those cases were separate because they didn't happen while he was president because the Survivors Act wasn't enacted until after he was president. And the first case was the initial just for the initial defamation when he was president but if you look at the three million dollars that the jury awarded for the second defamation you could infer from that and i always did that any judgment for defamation from the original 2019 libel when he was in the white house has to be uh, several times more because several times greater because a it was the the initial false statements about her. And, you know, it's like uh, my mother always used to say, first impressions matter. And that was the first lie. So it absolutely did the most damage. Uh, and also, um, although he wasn't engaged in his official capacity as president when he was um, first libeling her in June of 2019, the fact remains that because he was at the time president, his words his lies were amplified so it's i always felt that the judgment just in, in terms of compensatory damages alone was always going to be several times higher than the initial verdict that for the for the post-presidential libels and that's you know and that was consistent with the evidence because they put on evidence that they would take 10 million dollars to repair her reputation and she suffered 10 million dollars in damages and then the question of punitives comes up because and here you could not have created a better record for punitive damages if you if you were writing a fiction not if you were writing a novel 
uh, you know, a, a John Grisham novel. I don't know who would, who would be writing it. Or Scott Turo, or maybe maybe us someday. We'll we'll team up and write something. <laughs> and um, so you've got a guy who professes to have billions of dollars, and you've got one in one of the most. You've got that, and you've got this continual drumbeat, including during after the 2020 after 2022 going into 2023 going into 2024 and during the trial itself continuing to libel her and and muttering about how this was a witch hunt in the courtroom right in front of the jury i mean you could not build a better case or construct or imagine in your fever of dreams a, a stronger case for punitive damages and so, you know, when you look at punitive damages, I, I think a general rule of thumb is they're not excessive if they're, you know, any up to seven or eight or nine or maybe even 10 times the compensatory. So easily, if you have 10 or $20 million in compensatory damages, my thinking was, well, okay, multiply that by five, you're, you're, you're up to 50 or 100. You multiply it by six, you could get if it's 20, you could get 120. And I, I told someone the day before the verdict came down that I thought it was quite possible that there'd be a verdict of anywhere from 75 to 125 million. And, um, you know, but I, it, it's one thing to say that and to do that intellectual exercise in your head. And another thing entirely to actually see it happen. And yeah. in that sense, it was not surprising, but it was staggering. Um, for me, and emotionally staggering because I, I know Eugene Carroll. I met Eugene Carroll, and I, I just as a matter of just a, a, a pure serendipity, I was the one who first told her that she had a libel case because she asked me at a cocktail party the first time I met her. Like, you know, what do you think? And I had written something in the Washington Post about her credibility being greater than the credibility of some other um, alleged victims. And she thanked me for that. And she said, well, you know, some people say I said, should sue. What do you think? And I didn't tell her that she should sue. But I said, well, you, you know, if you choose to sue, you've got a claim. And then like that was just an instantaneous reaction. And then the instantaneous next thought was, oh, my God, this is perfect for Robbie, Robbie Kaplan, who I had gotten to know um, in 20, 2018, 2017, 2018. We'd become very good friends. And so I sent an email the next day. And, and so thinking back at that, at that serendipitous flash of insight that I had that one evening in July um, 2019 when I met Eugene, and then to see it blossom into this absolutely colossal judgment that really is the first occasion in Donald Trump's life, really, where he's really been forced to face the consequences of his own actions, it, it, I, I was moved to tears. I, I and, and 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 also considering Jean's Eugene's just bravery and just you know she didn't crawl back into the into a in, in, in curl up in, into a fetal position in, in in a closet. I mean, you know, I I remember when I met her that day at that cocktail party in July. 2019, you know, she was a, you know, she was a very composed, very dignified, um, great sense of humor, very 
um, just really put well put together woman. I didn't know, had no idea she was pushing 80. I thought she was in her upper 60s. I mean, at the at, at most. And I'm looking and, and, but you could see the weight on her shoulders of what, you know, and, and, and the way, and, 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 and then you see the, the way that she was just abused by Trump and Alina Haba. Basically, they're saying, well, you, 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 you shouldn't get any damage. You brought this on yourself. You, you brought this on yourself by telling this story. It's like, you know, this is the classic narcissistic trick they call psychologists called Darrow, deny, attack, reverse victim and offender, where you basically say, hey, you know, I mean, it, and, and narcissistic spouses do it all the time when, they're in, when, when they engage in abuse. It's like, why did you make me do that to you? And that was essentially their, that, I mean, it was obscene. It was malicious. And, and, and this jury saw right in front of their eyes. They saw the horror. They saw the the inhumanity, they saw the contempt that he had for the rule of law, the court, and them, and us, and Gene Carroll especially. And when you think about it, it's it's actually very overwhelming that this is this is the way it's supposed to be. And you this love how way, and you love how Trump, you know, talks about how um Judge Kaplan, who's a uh who is a lifetime appointment? Who's been on the bench since what? Cl I think he's a Clinton appointee. Nineteen. He went up. He went on the bench <clears> in nineteen ninety four, as we found out in the, in the bullshit recusal motion. That, <laughs> that right. And and meanwhile, he they keep blaming. You know, Trump keeps blaming by uh, uh, Kaplan, Lewis Kaplan, and and saying he's a Biden tool, et cetera, et cetera. This is a jury that decided this. A jury that Absolutely. Trump's lawyers agreed to. And Correct. chose they chose Ooh. this jury who awarded this. So it's just crazy to me. I loved I love Judge Kaplan's parting words to the jury, which is, "If I were you, I wouldn't tell anyone you were on this jury because it's yeah, you're and, and you're a prosecutor. When when do you see anonymous juries? What kind of cases you see it when you're, you know, when they're I've never had one. It doesn't happen. Had one. I've right, never but, had one. You don't have anonymous you, juries. Well, you have it when you you know in federal court they'll have them when they when when you when you're you know when you've got a RICO case and you've got mobsters and you've yeah, got like a mass murder gang bangers yeah. and 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 whatnot. Exactly, I mean, it's so rare though. You, it's reserved for the case. most for the most dangerous oh. people. It's reserved for, and that that's telling. I yeah, think. it's telling. Yep. So, do you have Absolutely. any insight into whether she'll get the money? And okay, oh yeah, I, 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 I yeah. So here, okay, so he was he. Okay, so he, had, he got hit with the $5 million judgment in 2022, and he did something remarkable, which is normally when you, you, you either have to pay the judgment within 30 days in federal court under the federal civil procedure, or if you don't, then the plaintiff who's won the judgment can go out and enforce the judgment by, I don't know, attaching your bank accounts and putting liens on your homes and whatever. I don't know. The, you know it's not something I've ever had to do, so I don't know what all the... All the tricks are to that. Um, I represented corporate clients who would just put up a bond, and that's what most people do. You put up a bond. You pay. You know, you pay somebody who's um, committed contractually to pay the judgment if you don't, so that you can appeal. And you pay that person a fee, and it could be a bank or I don't know. It could. There are just there are people who do this, and um, he couldn't get one. He couldn't get a five. This billionaire couldn't get or chose not to get, I, I think it's actually more that he couldn't get, a $5 million bond 
And, you know, the only possible reasons were he he didn't want to pay the bonding fee or he just didn't have the credit to do that or nobody could try. Maybe the assets aren't his own. I'm, I'm speculating, but he didn't do it. He, so what he did instead was he wrote a check, which you can do and deposit into this account nobody really knows about because it doesn't it's not used very often in the Southern District of New York. I don't know if other courts have similar federal courts have similar accounts. I assume they do. I don't know if they're called the same thing. They're called it's called a Chris account. And I only have one up one occasion in my entire 30 year legal career in New York City to have to deal with it is when when a judge wanted to was was giving some class action plaintiffs a hard time and he said, I don't want you holding the money. I want this Chris fund to hold the money. And so he deposited cash into that account, $5 million. So she's going to get that money. The court will disperse that money when the appeal from that first judgment is finally determined in her favor, which I'm confident it will be at some point. And so she's got the $5 million there. Now the problem is he's got, he's got this $88.3 million judgment. If he couldn't get a bond for that, He's not, I mean, he couldn't get a bond for the five. He's not going to get a bond for the 88.3. And then, so he would have to come up with 88.3 in cash. And the question is, does he have that? Now, he said he's testified, I think, in the New York civil action, the AG action, that he's got a, you know, $400 million in cash. Um, that's assuming he's, I mean, it's possible he might not be telling the truth on that. Who knows? Um, and, um, but he's got to fork out that money. If he puts it into the bank, into the Chris account and the court account, well, then it's going to be there for her and she's going to have it. If he, if he doesn't do that and he can't get a bond, then she can go running around or her lawyers can go running around uh, uh, attaching assets. Now, the problem they might have is that those assets may not be in his name. They may be in the name of all the, you know, his revocable trust, which and and his various corporate entities that he makes intentionally opaque to uh, you know I think to confuse people. Um, so it's going to be you know it, at, to borrow what Trump said about January sixth. It's going to be wild. Uh, now, if he if he if there's another thing that Gigi and Carol can do to 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 get the money sooner or at least some of it. I mean, she could essentially sell the judgment. She could, you know, you have a, if you have a judgment and 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 you don't really like collecting it, you want you can get somebody else to collect it by basically selling the rights to collect the judgment to someone else, which would make sense for her, since she's eighty years old. Obviously, it's contingent upon her winning the appeals, but somebody, you know, she could sell the for fifty cents on the dollar and come out with forty million dollars and forty-four million dollars in cash. I'm just making this up, and not have to worry about not have to worry about co the collection possibilities and you know all she has to do is win the appeal I, that would that would be the, the transaction it may well be i don't know that you know she's she had a litigation funder who, who trump made a big deal about who was basically paying the costs of you know um robbie kaplan running her extremely you know her small firm a, a large team of from a small firm running that at a high clip for a couple of years um, maybe maybe there's already a provision in there where 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 she can get part of the judgment and 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 have have uh, have the litigation financer collected. I'm just speculating, but there there she's going to see some I think significant portion of this money at a minimum. I I think one way or the other she's going to get something. She's certainly going to get the five million dollars. Wow. Um, 
And, and then we don't even know. And remember, you know, this this is we're we're awaiting Judge Engeron's decision, right? Who and he's going to hit. I mean, there's a pretty high percentage, and I defer to you on this because you probably probably following it close more closely than I am, being up in New York. I mean, he get hit with a three hundred million dollar judgment there, or more, or four hundred maybe. And and so I don't know where he's going to come up with all this money. I don't know how he's going to going to 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 stave off collection issues if he can't buy if he can't purchase a bond. I mean, he's got real troubles just on the civil front, leaving apart the 91 counts, felony counts he's been charged with in four separate jurisdictions. I like to say he's got 90, 91 counts, uh, 91 problems, and, and uh, jail is one. Yeah, except, <laughs> except nobody's willing to to treat him the way they would treat people who behave. A regular like defendant. Yeah, no, you yeah. or I would be, you or I would be in a lockup right now. Yeah, I mean, look at, look at what- anyway. I mean, anybody look at Sam Bankman Absolutely. free, right? He, yeah. he, he, he opened his mouth and judge, judge Kaplan threw him in the pokey. Exactly. There's no question. He, he, you know, Trump, Trump could, you know, Trump should, I don't know what the equivalent of the MCC is down in, here in DC. I don't doubt they have an equivalent, but um, yeah, I mean, he's lucky he's not in the pokey. I mean, uh, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just interesting because, because he pushes the envelope and and he walks up to the line and nobody's willing to oh he dances over it too he well, jumps i was gonna over say they he... keep i was gonna say they keep yeah. moving it right they yeah, just they keep right they... but they keep moving it right you're right because nobody wants to be the first one to do it except you know meanwhile out that's why that my old office the manhattan da's office they were the first no one wanted to go yeah. first right but they went first and he he was arrested and now he's in uh, now it's looking like that case that a lot of people criticize saying, well, why that case? It's not that serious. That's looking like it's going to be the only case that goes to trial uh, in March, it seems, because. Yeah, the, I think that's true. Yeah. Because because the D.C. Circuit is not ruling on presidential immunity, which is really confounding. And And I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about is this our you know they think it was argued january 9th a, i believe eighth or ninth yeah, eighth yeah, or ninth yeah. and uh they already it's already been on an expedited schedule to begin with right yes and so what is is this taking long does it just feel like it's taking long and what is taking them so long what is going on and why haven't they ruled? well i mean we have we have no idea exactly what's going on and and to take a step back as you know it takes in the normal course of a non-expedited appeal, um, they can take a long time. I've had appeals take a year or two, um, and I'm sure you've had two in the in the appellate division, and 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 even in the Second Circuit, they can you know if you get a panel that's particularly slow. And the D.C. Circuit is not necessarily known to be one of the fastest courts, uh, appellate courts in the land. Um, but they did take this on an expedited basis. They ordered briefing be conducted. With lightning speed, I think they understood the imperative of trying to um, preserve a speedy, a relatively speedy trial, if not a trial beginning on March 4th. And then um, I think that's the reason why when Jack Smith tried to leapfrog the Court of Appeals and go to the Supreme Court by filing what was is called a petition for certiorari before judgment, which would have taken the case out of the DC Circuit and put it straight up in the Supreme Court so it would get completely disposed of more quick. I think one of the reasons the Supreme Court denied that motion, that that petition, was because they thought the D.C. Circuit would act with, with very quickly. Now, that said, you know, so we're like 22, 23 days um, after argument. If the, if the decision came down this afternoon, 
it still would be a fast decision by any reasonable standards, even, even under in an expedited appeal. And if it came down Monday, it still would be. It's just that I, I think the expectation was, and certainly I'll admit, um, my expectation was, wow, they moved so fast here. I'll bet you they started writing the opinion already and 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 you know they'll have it they'll have it ready to go in a week. But you know, that's easy for us to say because we don't actually have to write the opinions, um, the opinion or opinions. And you know, it's a three-judge panel. And there can be legit, even if they all agree on what the result should be, there can be legitimate um, disagreements or a, a need to iron out possible differences uh, because you have to be very careful when you're writing a judicial opinion because there are all sorts, every sentence that you write can have unforeseen consequences. Every time you explain your reasoning and you, you say more than you might necessarily have to, somebody's going to use that someday in some other case, and you have to be careful um, how you do it. And, and, you, and they're also writing for the Supreme Court. So they, they want to make this as bulletproof as possible. And then there's a, you know, there are a couple of issues that, threshold issues, that there's a jurisdictional issue, um, which shouldn't change the result in, 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 in uh, of there being a trial, but there's a jurisdictional issue about whether or not uh, Trump can even have appealed the denial of immunity, because basically there's a there's a line of authority that says that you can't appeal, you can't appeal, you, basically you can never, you can't appeal interlock, what are called interlocutory rulings in the federal courts, rulings that aren't, that, that don't dispose of an entire case. Now, there are specific exceptions in the statutes, and then there's this thing called the collateral order doctrine, which says that if there's some issue where the court finally resolves it, it's not the whole case, but you can never undo it if you if you let the proceedings go further, uh, then you can appeal that. And that the argument here for Trump's right to appeal is, well, this is immunity. This is immunity means the right not to actually face a trial. And if you let this trial go forward by denying immunity, you turn out to be wrong. It's not fixable if you let the trial go forward. Um, but there's a line of authority in the Supreme Court that says that only explicit statutory and constitutional uh, guarantees of immunity um, can allow this interlocutory exception to the rule against interlocutory appeals to be invoked, and this is an explicit. This is this is something that they're, they're implying from the Constitution. Now, the answer to that is, well, if it's the Constitution, the Constitution trumps anything, every, anything, and everything, and so there has to be the right to appeal. But it's a it's a bit of a thorny threshold issue, and I could see um, courts overthinking this and maybe getting bogged down in that. That's a possibility. And then you know you have the you know judges are human. Not all judges are write at the same pace and think at the same pace. And, um, you know, uh, there are in every court you ever, every appellate court you ever see, every district or trial court you ever see, there's some judges who just write things quickly and dispose of things more quickly than others. And it could be that the, that the, that the person assigned to write this opinion on this panel is a, is a slower person than, than, than we might want. We have no idea what's going on. This is, you know, I've, I've been fulminating for five minutes about what what could be going on, but we really don't know. And so, what I mean, happens? That, yeah. What happens if um, if they rule and then Trump wants to seek an en banc? Does that does he have a right to do that? Does that? Yeah, he would. He would have a right. Yes, he would have a right to seek an en banc, and he would have a right to petition. Which means, for which means the, the 
which the is entire a- court of like 12 people. I don't know how many people are on the DC circuit, actually. It's either, yeah, it, I, it, the entire court. Um, and then he could go to the Supreme Court. Now, the thing that could speed that all up, because there are, you normally get 14 days, I think, or 14 or 21 days to go on bonk, and then you've got 90 days to file a cert petition in the Supreme Court. If that went, if those days, if if he used up all that time, he could easily chew up the rest of the uh, rest of the the summer um, with this. But the but the but the thing that's going to be driving the speed of the fir- proceedings after the District of Columbia Circuit rules will be whether the court lifts effectively lifts the stay by directly saying that it's lifting the stay of proceedings in the district court and allowing district court proceedings to proceed. And they can do that either by saying there is no stay, or they can just do it by what's issuing what's called the mandate immediately, which is the basically the formal judgment that says we've decided this appeal. And if they do that- Which and allow Smith asked for. Yes, absolutely. And, 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 and in expedited cases in the courts of appeals and federal courts of appeals, you'll see something like the judgment of, you know, the last sentences will be in, in the opinion, the judgment of the district court is affirmed or the order of the district court is affirmed. The mandate shall issue forthwith, meaning that there's not the normal X number of days before the clerk's office finally puts out the mandate and and and, allow, and, and sends the case formally back to the district court. So if if the court of appeals does that, it can actually light a fire under Trump to force him to make an immediate um, bonk petition in a, in the in, a, in an amount of time that's less than the, the allowed. The, the, the normal amount of time, or to seek a petition for a certiorari in, in 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 an expedited fashion, and that's effectively what the Colorado Supreme Court did in this Fourteenth um, Amendment Section Three disqualification case is being argued next week. What they said was, "You only get a stay, Mr. Trump, or Mr. Uh, and, and, and the Republican Party of Colorado, if you file a cert petition by January fourth. So, yeah, that's what they did, and that moved that moved that case." really, really quickly. And that's why it's going to be argued next week and decided promptly after that. I think still the worst case scenario um, for the cause of justice in the D.C. Circuit case, the the D.C. District Court prosecution would be they rule in the next couple of weeks and then the Supreme Court actually decides to take the case and the Supreme Court decides the case by June. I just can't see them letting this drag out to the fall, which is would be possible if they if 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 someone were determined to allow that to happen. Um, and if that if the case is decided by June, there's a good chance I think that the case could at least start to be tried in August or September. And the real issue is how long would it take, and would it be resolved before the election? So. Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting if he was. But you're right. I mean, the Bragg case has been, you know, it was the first, it was the first one brought, and it does now appear. I mean, we thought it was going to be the last. I thought it was going to be like the last one tried because he seemed to be deferring to everyone else, and it seemed like you know the Mar-a-Lago case was a, a slam dunk, uh, and Jack Smith brought the case here in the District of Columbia that 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 is just against one defendant. It was a very streamlined, focused. Uh, case, um, you know, I thought I would have thought those two cases would be tried um, this spring, but uh, you know, I mean, it's litigation. You can't, you can't always predict. You know, it involves a lot of moving pieces, and you can't always predict how quickly those pieces will move to where they're supposed to move or even get there. So, well, speaking of Mar-a-Lago, I want to talk about that, and I want to talk about your Fourteenth Amendment uh, case. Uh, that you just were, were mentioning, but just I, w- I have one question about Mar-a-Lago. I was first of all 
absolutely shocked yesterday to read the ABC News report that there's a secret room at Mar-a-Lago that uh, that the FBI missed, as well as the fact that Trump changed the locks on a closet right before the FBI got there. You know, presume and and then he had the key, and they didn't they didn't go in there. I was just absolutely shocked. But my question for you has to do with Judge Cannon. Um, a lot of people are just accusing her of of doing Trump's bidding and slow walking this uh, because you know she's a Trump appointee, et cetera. What what are your thoughts on how she's handling these issues in this case? Well, look, I mean. I as you know, trial judges have an enormous amount of discretion in scheduling proceedings in front of them. And I hesitate to say that any judge is acting out of an impure motive. And I hesitate to say that it's impossible that this case won't be tried this year, although for, you know, because of the way she has conducted proceedings thus far, I, I'm not all that hopeful. I would ordinarily not entertain that kind of speculation about her motives were it not for the bizarre proceedings that occurred in front of her when the case was first brought and when she, or, or when, they, when they first served, actually, when she first dealt with, um, the grand jury, uh, the, the, uh, the, the search warrant that the Justice Department had secured um, on the property at Mar-a-Lago. And then there was this bizarre satellite litigation where she created some kind of a special master and appointed a, a special master, a, basically a separate judge to, to deal with disputes that really just were not things that were any business of the defendants. I mean, the you know, the government seizes things in a search warrant. The government gets to do what it wants with them, and um, you, you know, there's no, there shouldn't be any interference by the, by the defendant. And and you know, the, this resulted in this bizarre satellite litigation that took several weeks before the indictment and and re required the intervention twice of of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eleventh Circuit, where they basically said, look, this guy. Is like anybody else who gets who gets who, whose property is searched, and if he's a defendant, he's going to be like any other defendant. Um, something that should have been clear from the outset. So, you know, she she starts with that black mark against her, and yeah, it's like it, this is really hard to fathom. Um, this case, the the Mar-a-Lago case, even though it involves classified documents and there are special procedures provided for by Congress that. You know that 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 require additional work dealing with highly classified documents, sensitive national security documents, and 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 yes, she's not one of the judges um, who is familiar with those provisions because they just don't get those cases in Fort Myers or not Fort Myers or Fort whatever Florida. Fort Pierce, I think. Um, Fort Pierce, yes, I get all my forts confused. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, the, the judges who deal with that here, most of them are here in the east, uh, in here in the District of Columbia and under Maryland and the Eastern District of Virginia. But still, it's not that complicated because the content of those documents, the specific content of those documents, does not matter that much. It's not, you know, it's not the specifics. It's the fact of the fact that these documents were in his possession and the fact that these documents 
were, generally speaking, classified, but more importantly, national security documents, because the Espionage Act charges, which, which are in the indictment, don't actually require classification. They just require there to be sensitive national security information in the document. There's no dispute that those documents contain such information. And there's no, really, he, there's, there's overwhelming evidence that he lied. He had his lawyers lie about whether he had had the documents in his possession and had returned them all to the government. And, and then he tried to move them around in advance of an FBI uh, a visit by the FBI and the Justice Department so they would be concealed. And then, uh, I mean, it's just the, 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 the obstruction charges alone are a no-brainer. I mean, this, this, I agree. this case could be tried in about, in let, I mean, this is as simple as a, uh, this is not that much more complicated than a, than a, than a, a nickel and dime street corner drug bust in, 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 you know, that, that, a, that, a, that a junior federal prosecutor would handle here in D.C. or in I agree. In the New consciousness York. of guilt evidence, yeah, like thinking the, all of it, it's just it's overwhelming. And it's it is so yeah. much more simple in some ways than the January 6th case. But absolutely. So and so that all that being said, uh, uh, you know, you have to wonder what's going on with this judge. And it's highly. I. I, I it's highly disturbing. And I and I think more attention needs to be focused on, on what this judge is doing and why. Uh, and yeah. I and I think that you know she's managed to sort of stay a little bit under the radar screen by slowing things down, and you know Donald Trump is kind of helping by getting hammered in other places. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so people aren't you know because actually he's helped in, in weirdly by things like the E.G. Carroll judgment because people aren't focusing on what what this judge in in, in Fort Pierce is doing. So yeah, that's something. Yeah, that's something that deserves a lot more focus. What 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 she's doing, and and um, and that's something we need to talk more about. I think in the future. Talk a little bit about now what's going on next week at the with the Fourteenth um, Amendment and and that case. Well, okay. So on, I guess it's Thursday morning at eleven a.m. This marshal of the Supreme Court is going to say, "Oye, oye." all people having business before this honorable court. And they're going to hear argument in this case brought in Colorado uh, by the state attorney general, no, by, by a bunch of individual voters. Um, well, I don't even know procedural posture. But uh, it basically, the, the, the courts in Colorado held that Donald Trump is barred from being on the ballot because he would be barred from office under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which provides that anybody who takes an oath to support the Constitution of, of the United States, who then engages in insurrection or aid and or gives aid and comfort to the enemies of that said Constitution, um, cannot hold office under the United States. And it, it, by its terms, it applies to Donald Trump. And the arguments that Trump is making in the Supreme Court, and they were unsuccessful in the lower courts, are that one, he's not an actual officer of the United States. And, and for that, he's relying on what I think to be inapposite authority dealing with um, the appointments clause where the president can appoint officers under the Constitution or the, some other method can be provided if they're inferior offices. I think 
you know, there's a, there's language in some Supreme Court decision that basically says that, you know, officers aren't elected like the president is. And people are saying, ah, the president, therefore, is not an officer. But that's but then, not didn't the what, lower court in Colorado find the same right, thing? They, no, well, the, the first court did, but the Supreme Court did not. Yeah. The district court did, but the Supreme Court did not. And the reason why it's wrong is that the appointments clause only deals with officers who are appointed by the president. It doesn't mean the president's not an officer. It just It just means the president is an officer who's not subject to appointment because there's another provision in the Constitution, namely the 12th Amendment and other provisions of the Constitution that show how he's supposed to be elected, which is by the Electoral College. So... I don't think that argument is very good. And there and 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 there's a lot of historical evidence that people understood in 1867 or 68 when they were drafting the 14th Amendment and it was being enacted by the states, uh, approved by the states, that people understood the president to be the chief officer of the land. And then there's uh, some interesting, uh, interesting, there's an interesting letter that somebody, it's not really precedent, but it's interesting, an interesting letter that apparently Justice Scalia wrote explaining that, you know, he thought that an officer, that the president was an officer. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think that's a stretch of an argument, but people seem to be taking it more seriously than I would. Um, and, you know, I, I think the feeling is uh, among most people, including people who think that Trump should be disqualified under the 14th Amendment, is that the court is going to look for any way to get out from having to be the one that delivers this blow to Trump, because it's just you know, people don't understand it. People think, how can you knock somebody off the ballot? And, um, I, you know, that th this may be the way out for the Supreme Court, people think. But then there's another there's another argument that Trump is making, which I think is even more, is even weaker, which is an argument that Section 3, which, that provision I was describing, it, is not self-executing, that it does not stand alone. It doesn't have any force or effect unless Congress passes a law providing a method by which it can be by which um, someone it can be determined to have been engaged in an insurrection. And the problem is that's that's not what the what the what the the Constitution is not what the Fourteenth Amendment says. It has a provision. There's a provision, Section Five of the Fourteenth Amendment, that says that Congress can enact appropriate legislation to enforce the prior four sections, but no one has ever held that, for example, to require that Congress pass a law so that such that the, so that the 14th Amendment Section 1's prohibition against the denial of equal protection by the states, which you know, prohibits racial discrimination, no one has ever suggested that, that, that the states have the right to engage in racial discrimination, notwithstanding Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, unless and until Congress passes a law. That's just ridiculous. That would mean that if Congress repealed all of the civil rights statutes tomorrow, you know, uh, all the states could resegregate their schools by race. And that's just not the law. It's just crazy. I think that argument's bad. He and preposterously he preposterously says he didn't take an oath to support the Constitution. I mean, that. that oh, yeah, no, no. Right. He, he, yeah. He preserve, protect and and defend the Constitution. He's saying that, well, that that's not the same as what Section three of the 14th Amendment is which says support. Okay, well, if you're the president of the United States and you're sworn to preserve, protect, defend, I mean, that's kind of supporting the constitution, I would think. And But they, they, they made that ridiculous argument too, and they're still making that ridiculous argument. The, the only argument More that I thought had some legs, I don't even know if he made it, but certainly others have made it, um, which to me is, is, is really the only thing that, uh, that made me think, huh, I wonder if, if that's the case, which is, you know, 
to have engaged who, who who's to say whether you've engaged in an insurrection and isn't there some due process required to and I know there was a trial in Colorado in front of a judge it was a bench trial um and she and she found that he had engaged in an insurrection and and that that was my only I know I know there's not, not it doesn't say in there that you have to be convicted etc I, I understand that that yep. a lot of people talk about that but that's the one that feels and again it's a feeling more than it's a legal analysis that's the only one that feels to me like like it does seem to require some structure or some due process or something well let me let me let me there there are two lines of response to that and the first is i mean there, there are really two separate arguments there there's the process argument and then there's the substance argument and the substance argument is what does it mean to engage in an insurrection and personally i've always thought that that's the only straight-faced argument that trump has um why do you agree with me because I, I agree I, I, yeah and, and and but not because i think it's right but because i mean you can at least argue intelligibly and intelligently that well, to engage in an insurrection, I don't think there's any doubt that what happened on January 6th is an insurrection because an insurrection doesn't just doesn't necessarily mean a coup. It doesn't necessarily mean a war. It means basically a violent uprising against civil authority. And that's what happened on Capitol Hill on January 6th, 2021. Now, what does it mean to engage in an insurrection? Certainly, it means that if you were carrying arms on Capitol Hill, if you were engaging in individual engaging in violence on Capitol Hill on January 6th, you were engaging in insurrection. If you were planning and organizing um, some people who were on site, like the, you know, the Proud Boys or whatever the names of those groups were, there was one guy who, who was back in a motel in Virginia and he was organizing it all. Well, I think that's engaging in insurrection too, uh, also. And, uh, but I think Trump is arguing and what's interesting is he didn't really make this argument that strongly in his petition for certiorari but he moved it up in his merits brief when they when when the time came to file a full-blown brief on the merits that, uh, of the for the for the argument that's coming up he, his argument he's making an argument that he didn't engage in insurrection because he didn't engage in such planning he didn't engage in such direct participation now the answer to that would be okay but that you 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 invited all of these people here. You asked them to come to Washington. You told them to go up to Capitol Hill. You wanted to go and and join them up on Capitol Hill to the point of you almost choked a Secret Service agent, uh, or you did choke a Secret Secret. I mean, they're just you know without him, none of this would have happened. So you know that's the counter argument. But at least there is some intel intelligible argument saying well. Uh, you actually have to participate. You can't just sort of encourage people to do something bad in 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 a in, in a general sense. I don't think it's protected by the First Amendment, but um, I do think that he does have an argument there. And he as he moved that argument up to the second point, pay, part, second argument in his brief, as I just mentioned. And normally, when you write appellate briefs, as as uh, as I'm sure you did, and I did, you did in criminal, I did civil. Um, you put your best arguments first and you basically, you know, when, when you see a brief, it's like, generally speaking, you assume that the first argument is the one that the plain, the, 
the appellant believes in the most, the second is number two, and the third is number three. You order your points in order of their strength. And so they move that point up, that one that we we're just discussing about engaging in an insurrection. But think of the problems for the Supreme Court. Is the Supreme Court of the United States really going to want to overturn a factual? They don't normally overturn factual findings. And of all the factual findings they've ever, I mean, that, that they don't exist to overturn factual findings. They normally take the factual findings of the lower courts as a given because they not they don't they they they're, they're supposed to be a pure court of that decides that decides purely issues of law at least that's the in the modern iteration so but they, then they want to take are they going to want to take this one on and and say that Donald Trump did not engage in insurrection that's that's a that's a tough one to swallow too just as hard as disqualifying him so i i, I would this is not an easy case for the court, not because I think it's legally difficult. I just think it's prudentially difficult for them because I think that it's like it's one of these things where, um, you know, and it, it goes with the with judging is you have to sometimes you have to do stuff. The law makes you do stuff that it's kind of scary to have to try to do, and and so we'll see whether they have the courage of. To, to enforce the law and particularly, and I don't think this is necessarily going to be conservative liberal split because, you know, we've seen commentators out there, we've seen liberal commentators saying, oh, we can't possibly, this can't possibly happen. And we were seeing conservative commentators saying, like, you know, Judge Ludig or me saying, well, you know, this is the language of the statute and we conservatives believe in the language of the, I mean, the language of the constitution. It says in plain terms what it says. And you know, like it or not, we have to apply it that way. And that's sort of going to be an interesting dynamic in the argument on Thursday, which is the the, the strict, the, the, the textualists and the originalists on the court, the conservatives, you know, the, the, the best arguments against Trump are textualist and originalist arguments. But this, hey, look, it just said this. You got you to gotta apply it as it's written. You can't clever way out the way liberals found clever ways of reading all sorts of things that you didn't like into the constitution over many years so it's sort of like it's it's this it, it's sort of an amazing test of people's fundamental views of jurisprudence um and i i i would not even though i think that the the legal arguments are strong run strongly in favor of the plaintiffs I would not put I would not put money on this on this case. I would put money on a lot of other things, but not this case. Is it going to be a, a audio? Are we going to be able to hear the audio next week? I think they're yes. I think they're going to run. I, I think that you know, as the court has done in highly. I mean, normally what the Supreme Court does is they don't allow cameras in the courtroom. They do record all of their arguments, and typically, what happens on an argument day is the argument is recorded, and then. You know, it's a ten o'clock or eleven o'clock argument most of the most of the time, and then by one or two in the afternoon, they post both the transcript of the argument and the tape of the argument. Um, in cases that are of exceptional public interest, where there's just overwhelming media interest, they will do a live stream. And I think they also did it during COVID because of COVID. But and in this case, they're going to have you know, this this argument is going to be live streamed and you probably can be able to turn on CNN or MSNBC or um, 
you know, the medium of your choice. You could probably log on to the Supreme Court website and you can you can listen to this live as it's happening. You won't be able to see the, the smiling faces of the justices or the counsel, but you will be at least on probably CNN and MSNBC, you'll be seeing these sketches of them. Yeah, well, you'll be able to see it on the. You ever see? Do you ever see? Do you ever see the when they when somebody made these Muppets of the of, of, or, or or dolls of the Supreme Court justices and they and they they time them to to the to the tape of an argument and. and, and Amazing. I don't know that we won't see that here, but no, but we'll, you'll you'll be able to get it on on uh, the Midas Touch Network too if it's if it's available for sure. We'll we'll also stream it. Yeah, um, you guys are amazing. So George, we're coming to the end, but I want you to I want to talk about your new podcast that you have announced. Tell us about it. What are you doing, and uh, when? Where can we find it, and how often? I love reading your Atlantic articles, by the way. Uh, oh, I know you. you're a frequent contributor and it's a great place. It's a it's certainly a great place for information for anybody who's who's looking to really No, it's it's there it's it's, a, it's just an amazing, amazing journal. And I, it, I, is, it is, it is. And yeah, I'm no, proud they have me writing for it, you know. I mean they would Yeah, well me, your so. writings are definitely a trusted source for sure. But tell us about your podcast. Okay. So the podcast, I you know for a long time people say, oh you should do a podcast, you should do a podcast. And everybody under the sun, you know, has podcasts. And I always thought, well, you know, I mean, aren't we going to end up with more global warming with all this energy being devoted to podcasts? I don't know. Uh, and I was always resistant to them. It's like, okay, well, what's, why does the world need another podcast? But uh, at the Bulwark, uh, run by Sarah Long, well, she finally, and she persuaded me by promising me that I wouldn't have to do any new work, any work, I would just have to answer her questions. And um, since I, I make it an effort, particularly because I think I sort of have a duty to do that this year, and I go on television and talk about stuff, and I'm writing about stuff, you know, this is another way. And I, I bet you have this a similar experience with doing this podcast and going on CNN. There's a synergy involved where you basically you learn having to talk about things forces you to learn about them. And then, you know, when I talk about something, I say, hey, well, I should write this up. Or when I write something up, I say, hey, this is something I can talk about. So I said, okay, fine, I'll do this. And so we basically what the idea behind the podcast was is that, you know, Sarah Longwell is a political type. She's a, a, a um, she's, she runs um, nonprofit political organizations and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, she's a political consultant. And she doesn't have a background in the law. And she says there needs to be a podcast where, somebody explains to me, like I'm a five-year-old, what's going on? And I don't quite dumb it down that much. I talk too fast and I talk too much, but um, people seem to be responding to it and it's done quite well. And our most recent episode, we taped yesterday afternoon at four o'clock and our, our guests were, were, were uh, Robbie Kaplan and one of her law partners who tried both of the E. Jean Carroll cases. Wow. And she told us some absolutely amazing stories about Trump's behavior at his deposition. Um, one story was how when he found out that Alina Haba and her team had ordered, the deposition was at Mar-a-Lago. And whoever's hosting a deposition, as you know, um, it typically in the practice of law, they buy lunch for everybody and they put they stick lunch in a conference room. Uh, for their adversaries. It's just a courtesy. And, and it made sense here because they insisted, the Trump people insisted, his lawyers insisted on having the deposition in Florida at Mar-a-Lago. 
So anyway, Trump finds out just before the lunch break that Alina bought Robbie and her team lunch and he flips out and he takes, there's a stack of exhibits on the table and he takes them and he chucks them against the wall and violently and storms out of the room. That's an incredible story to hear Robbie tell. And then the other story. Wait, just because was, his lawyer bought lunch? Bought lunch. And then he's screaming at, he, they could hear him screaming at Alina. I mean, you almost feel sorry for Alina. Okay. Why is she screaming still his lawyer? Do you know what? Like, why does she, his lawyer, like, I mean, uh, I don't want to pile on, but she just has not even the most basic level of competence. I, you know, just, she just doesn't. And how, how, why, A, why is she his lawyer? Is that, is this by design? Like, what is going on here? Well, he loves people who just will say anything to defend him. And I mean, he likes attractive women. Let's 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 be blunt about it. So those two, I think, stood her in good step instead. And she basically will do whatever he tells her to do, including things that got her in trouble before the judge. That said, you know, he he posted on Truth Social a couple of days ago that he was now interviewing um, appellate lawyers to overturn the, the Carroll judgments. So she may be out. Maybe he finally had enough of her. I, I have no idea. We, who, who the hell knows? I mean, people go in and out of Trump world for reasons you can't even can't even fathom um, uh, on a day to day basis. And so we don't really know. And the other story, I had to tell the other story, which is pretty wild. Not necessarily. You can't really tell it on a, on a family TV network. But at the end of the what happened was there were two depositions that were essentially back to back one week to the other. Um, one was in this um, pyramid scheme case called ACN, and Robbie represents the plaintiffs there, and the other was in the Carroll case. I forget which one was first, but at the end of the first day, um, Trump and Alina, as they are leaving, Trump says to Robbie, see you next Tuesday, referring to the next deposition ostensibly, except the deposition wasn't on Tuesday. See you next Tuesday. Yeah, I'm not yeah, going to yeah. say what that means. Yeah, well, no, it's um, a, a, I think most people. I, I had only mean. heard it like once or twice in my life. And when, when, when I first heard that story from Robbie, and Robbie didn't know what it meant. And she, he, she just was puzzled. Like, why are they talking about Tuesday instead of Wednesday? And then basically one of her associates or partners had to explain in, in, in the car ride back to the airport, um, Robbie. This is what this means. He just called you a terrible expletive name for yes, a very, for, very for those misogynistic you, term. Yeah. For those of you who are listening, who don't know, um, I hate to tell you this, but it's the letter C, the letter U, and then next Tuesday. Yeah. Um, and it's a very derogatory way of calling a woman a terrible name. Um, what a disgusting, I mean, he is just, oh, just he's a pig. I, he's a pig. He's, you know, it's really a dude would do that. I mean, who is just beyond? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, uh, he's just repulsive. And to think that the man was president of the United States. I mean, and to think that he's going to potentially be again is what I just, for the life of me, I don't understand. I mean, I, as I tell everybody, and again, I'm not political and what do I know, but I, I, I kind of feel like, don't people know if you really hate Joe Biden, who I love, by the way? Why don't you just make Nikki Haley your your 
nominee. I think I mean, she could. I think people would vote for her. Like, yeah, I, I think I, she, she'd win a general election. Yeah, she'd win. Irrational. That's, yes, yes. that's so. This is like irrational. I don't understand why they don't see this because absolutely. And again, well, that I, plane that that plane on on autopilot. But what with it's the more than on autopilot, the, people are he's, doubling down. Yeah. I mean, they yeah. are like. Yep. F yep. you, F me, F me, F you, you know, and I'm going to, yep. it's this, it's this insanity and hopefully they're going to fly their plane into the, you know, into the ocean like that. Yeah. The problem is the problem is, is as you know, are, are, is he gonna, are they going to take the rest of the country with them? And that's the problem. Well, I, what I mean by flying it into the ocean, yeah, I, I, know, know, I, know, I know, I know that he doesn't get elected president, but yeah. anyway, I am so appreciative that you Thank took you. time. We, we came full circle there, <laughs> topic-wise, right? Yes, of course. You got to you got to turn it back it into all comes down to that. The Malaysia Airlines yeah. you know, plane that we're going to fly into the ocean. No. Aye, 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 aye. Um, but is there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to mention? Yeah. Or no, I don't think I ever have to say another word publicly again. I think we talked about everything. <laughs> <laughs> you were very comprehensive, Karen. Any any. Any secrets, any Trump secrets that you want to reveal that you know oh, no, you've never no, told I, anybody? I, no, I, I I think I've told all my stories. All right. Well, I'm so appreciative. Uh, I love your little corgi. I love your I love your corgi Yes, exactly. Yeah. I should I should be moving them up. I don't know why. I think the housekeeper pushed them back a little bit. But. <laughs> Anyhow, thank you so much. And you. I hope you'll join us again. Absolutely. Thanks. Take care. Love this video? Make sure you stay up to date on the latest breaking news and all things Midas by signing up to the Midas Touch newsletter at MidasTouch.com newsletter.